The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Again, welcome on this beautiful day. Um, exactly a month ago, on April 18th, <clears throat> our dear friend, a longtime community member, and one of the founding board members of Common Ground, Craig Vollmer, died. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in early 2010. And in fact, Eric, my husband, accompanied Craig for a meeting with his oncologist as Craig's medical advocate. Two months after that meeting, Eric himself was diagnosed with the same cancer. And of course, as many of you know, while Craig lived on for four more years, Eric died the following spring, within a year of the diagnosis. And he died, um, I guess Craig too. Craig died on April 18th, and my husband died on April 28th. So they died this time of the year when the star magnolias and beautiful yellow forsythia blossomed. So grief has been an intimate companion, sometimes a hidden sharpshooter, and above all, a fierce and tender teacher on impermanence and love. So this morning, I would like to share some of my learning on grief. Now, some of you may think that grief is not relevant in your life right now. Or some of you may be in grief for a while and kind of sick and tired of it and don't want to hear anymore, especially on this beautiful morning. You may feel differently when I'm done talking. And it is my hope that many of you will find mercy when grief meets you on your journey. How many here have lost someone significant? Look around. Keep your hands up. Look around. Well, pets count too. How many here has not experienced any death in your family or an extended family? Grandpa, grandma, uncles, aunt. How many has not experienced any death? Look around. Has any of you felt a longing for closure for an unfinished loss, losses? A one-sided breakup? (laughs) Um, Untimely departure of someone close to you? Yeah. News of death of someone far away, someone you didn't get to say goodbye. Yeah. Has anyone had an experience of wishing for something or someone to be there when they were not there? (laughs) It could be people or weather. Remember this long, hard, cold winter? 
a wish for a right parent, a right upbringing, right birthplace, right sexual orientation, right race. So losses are inseparable from life. So what happens when we don't consciously mark our losses and grieve? The Buddha taught that impermanence, together with not-self and suffering, comprise the characteristics of existence. Even as I speak, the impermanence is everywhere within us and around us. The breath you just took, it's gone. And now there's new one. And that's gone too. Within us, millions of cells are dying and being born. New babies are born. Kids grow up and leave home. We are healthy, and then we get sick. We get old, and we die. As I speak, the planet has turned towards the sun. And you can see the sun moving as I speak. And the leaves on the trees have stretched towards the sun. And you notice, at least I notice, in one day the banks of the Mississippi turned green miraculously. From the moment of waking up this morning until this moment, And this moment, how many imperceptible changes and losses we might have encountered, do you think? The warm weather made some of us happy, but then it might have made it difficult to come here and sit inside for an hour and a half. And if so, did you attend to that tiny sense of loss with awareness and care? Or did you come with a tiny, unfinished ambivalence? All things that are born must perish, the Buddha said. Then grief, a human response to changes and losses, is as inevitable part of everyday life as breathing, eating, eliminating, So the question is not whether we grieve. It's how do we hold this human experience, not to fix it, but learn to relate to it. In a way, it will ultimately freeze us. Grief is a doorway to awakening. Frank Ostaseski, the co-founder of Zen Hospice Project, said, Accepting impermanence is not a resignation, but it is a prerequisite to liberation of your heart. Accepting impermanence is not a resignation, but it is a prerequisite to liberation of your heart. So let's start with the story of Kisa Gotami, the most well-known Buddhist story of loss and grief. And in 2,500 years plus, there's been many versions of the story developed. So um, this I'm going to be telling kind of composite of different versions. Kisa Gotami was an insecure little girl. 
she was picked on for being so skinny. Kisa means skinny. So Kisa Gotami means skinny Gotami. But later she married to a wealthy merchant, and in time to the couple's delight, she gave birth to a fine son. When she became a mother, her insecurities all melted away. The little boy, little baby made her so happy. She just loved him. When he was a toddler, one day he was happily and busily playing in the yard. The poisonous snake bit him, and he died quickly. When Kisa Gotami found his body cold and blue, she went mad. She would not believe he was dead. Clutching the limp body of the baby, she went to the village, screaming and pleading for help to save the baby. To the villager, it was obvious that the baby was dead, and the mother went mad. Finally, a village elder took pity on her, and he told her to go see the Buddha. He may be able to help her. So Kisa Gotami immediately ran to find the Buddha, still clutching the corpse. Lord Buddha, please help, help me. Give me medicine to bring my son back to life, she pleaded. The Buddha said he would help. He would help her and her son. But first she had to do something. Gotami said, oh, I would do anything. So the Buddha told her to go find a handful of mustard seeds from a home where there had been no death. You know, of course, the mustard seeds are like salt. It's a common ingredient in Indian cooking. So every household has that. So Gotami ran back to her village. Please, do you have some mustard seeds you can give me? But only if your home has had no death. Did I upset the dog? (laughs) No, really. I'll restrain myself. I I can't see because of the light. Yeah? Okay. I will be happy to give you some mustard seeds, but my father died three months ago. The first house said, She went to the second house and begged for the mustard seeds, but their uncle had died. In another, their mother had died. In another, sister had died. She went house to house, and they were all glad to give her the mustard seeds, but they could not say they had not lost someone in death. As the day went on and the sun was going down, she arrived at the last house. She faintly asked for some mustard seeds only if she knew what the answer was going to be. Perhaps this this home had lost a child just like her. Gotami realized she was not the only one who faced death, that everything that is born must eventually die. 
You know, in the beginning, she felt so alone and abandoned in her unbearable grief. But gradually, she felt kinship with the villagers. They were too willing to give her the mustard seeds. But each household had their share of grief. So she learned the truth of impermanence, and she found some consolation in the shared grief. She accepted that her son was dead, so she was able to bury her corpse. Then she went back to the Buddha to report her her learning, her realization. Being awakened by the death of her son, she received the Buddha's medicine, the awakening to the truth of impermanence, that death comes to all people without exception. And of course, as so many of the Buddhist stories go, right there and then she wanted to become the Buddha's follower. So she did become a nun. She was admitted to join the order of bhikkhunis. She became a very hardworking, uh, diligent nun, but at peace. And later, it is said that she achieved enlightenment. So when Kisa Gotami went to the Buddha, the Buddha didn't try to convince her that the baby was dead. He didn't say, you have to accept this death and you just have to let go. He said he would find a medicine for her, understanding Gotami's wild state and having compassion for her. You know, there's often a misconception that if you are a good Buddhist, you have to just accept and let go, as if there's no room for mourning. John Halifax, the guiding teacher of Upaya Zen Center, and the author of Being with Dying, wrote, When my mother died, I received one of the best teachings of my life on grief. I realized that I only had one chance to grieve her. As a Buddhist, I felt I had a kind of a choice. On the one hand, I could be so-called good Buddhist and accept death and let go of my mother with great dignity. The other alternative was to scour my heart out with sorrow. I chose to scour Sometimes we think, we think if we meditate right or meditate long and hard, we wouldn't feel the pain of our losses. Instead, when we bring our attention to our direct experience, sometimes we come face to face with raw pain. The meditation practice is to meet it with courage, without pushing it away or be defeated by it. You lean into your grief and become intimate with it. Over time, we can practice to meet it with kindness and wisdom. Healing is not about not having the pain. It's about learning to hold it with tender care. Healing is not about not having pain. It's learning to hold it with tender care. And this is a part 
we most often forget. Our death-phobic and grief-phobic culture misguides us as to how our losses are dealt with. Our culture puts us in a hurry to get over our grief and become productive again. The academia may give us theories and stages of grief that, that we are supposed to follow, like on the conveyor belt. Us humans don't work that way. When we realize that we are grieving, it's good to let go of our preconceived ideas and conventional expectations of what <coughs> grief is supposed to look like or feel like. Our grieving process unfolds in our own unique way when we learn to meet it with kindness and understanding. Patience, then, is one of the most useful virtues on learning to hold our experience of grief. When my husband died, it felt like a part of me died, too. I just didn't know what part. I thought grieving was about feeling sad and crying and missing him. It was so much more profound getting to the core of my identity. Who was I without him? Who will I be now? It was so much wider in scope, affecting my sense of time and place, so disorienting, so unpredictable, like going into a wild, unknown territory without a choice. Many things once familiar lost the familiarity, that comforting familiarity. I didn't realize how much refuge I took in the shared, familiar space with him. I really missed that feeling of knowing that he would cover my back. Without him, I felt naked and vulnerable. If death was mysterious, being left alive without him seemed as mysterious and unfamiliar. I tried to understand my experience of losing my husband. Our lives were so intertwined in shared space, shared time, values, visions. What did I lose, really? Sometimes it felt like losing a limb. And that thought of maybe it was like losing a limb. It was a limited but very useful metaphor for me to work with for a while. If I lost a limb, let's say my right hand, right arm, what would I do? So one day I pretended that I didn't have my right hand and tried to do everything just with my left hand. And like, like writing, like trying to cut food. <laughs> um, it was very awkward. It slowed everything down, and I had to pay a lot more attention, and I had to learn to tolerate the kind of tediousness. 
And there were things I didn't know how to do with just one hand. But from that exercise, I discovered a few things. One is that with patience and practice, I can develop new muscles and new dexterity in my left hand. And I will be able to learn to do things that it never dreamt of before. The other is I would need to get some resources outside of me, like new helpers, new gadgets. Because there are things I simply couldn't do on my own. The third is to remember the limbs and the organs that are strong and working still. In so doing, I connected with my aliveness. I almost forgot. So the exercise helped me to remember the inherent holiness and perfection of life, no matter the losses. So when we are overwhelmed with pain, it's good to remember what else is here besides the pain. What else is here, right here, right now? I make effort to notice the parts of my body that are working and that are not in pain. On the way here, I told a couple of people that I ran into, asked me, how are you doing? I've been in pain for two weeks with my arthritis. But I make no effort to notice the parts of my body that are working, that are not in pain. It's so much easier, have you noticed, to feel the pain body because it screams and it nags. But the sensations of the well-functioning body parts are subtle. But believe me, they are there if you pay attention. I took my dog for a walk this morning and noticed that my hip was not in pain as it was for two weeks. For that moment, moment, walking with that pain felt like floating in the air, and my whole being smiled. Thich Nhat Hanh said, When I have a toothache, I discover that not having a toothache is a wonderful thing. <laughs> that is peace. I had to have a toothache in order to be enlightened, to know that not having one is wonderful. My non-toothache is peace, is joy. But when I do not have a toothache, I do not seem to be happy. Therefore, I look deeply in the present moment and see that I have a non-toothache. That can make me very happy already. <laughs> so let's practice remembering the parts of our body and our life that are working and not take them for granted. And you know, if it were not so, you would not have made it here this morning. Do you realize that? You are here because of all the working parts of your body, your mind, your heart. 
It's good to remember also that no matter how intense, huge the pain is, we are not the pain. We are more than the pain. There is part of us that does not get touched by the pain. There is part of us that does not get touched by the pain. And that is our awareness. The experience of the pain and the awareness of the pain are not the same thing. The more we can get clear on this, the more likely we can hold the experience of pain without just getting lost in unpleasant and scary pain. Grief is double-sided, double-sided. It spears our heart and also awakens us to the truth of impermanence, of love and connection to one another. Stephen Levine wrote, We are learning to live with the consequences of love, so we must bear loss as deeply as we cared in order to balance our fear with our, with our courage we must trust our pain enough to explore it. As Kisa Gotami found out, the paradox of grief is that it makes you feel so alone, yet it is in everyone. It is one shared human experience. When our personal sorrow connects with the 10,000 others suffering this same sense of loss, at this same moment, it ripples across the shared reservoir of grief, turning it into an ocean of compassion, Levine added. There's also a psychobiological base of grief. As mammalian organisms, we are physiologically and neurologically designed to develop attachments The blueprint for attachment is wired in our brain when we are born. So a newborn survival response is to attach to a parental figure that gives milk, that ensures comfort and safety. And the parental figure's task is to bond with that baby. So this attachment and bonding is an essential foundation that will evolve as a capacity for mature love later in life. We need to appreciate that we are here because of our attachments. In all days of orphanages, babies without attachment figures literally withered and died. And the Dalai Lama had said, no attachment no compassion. Not all the losses are so clear-cut. There are ambiguous losses that make overt grieving difficult and the pain accumulate in the unconscious and in the body. I see people practicing, so I have to hurry up. People missing in the war where the body was never found. 
the families of the passengers of the Malaysian airline. When my mother could not find her mother's body after the night of bombing that killed 800,000, she was obsessed about finding her mother even though the likelihood of survival was nil. She could not move away from the devastated neighborhood because she kept on hoping one day she would find her. To mourn her the fin- without the final proof of death seemed to betray their bond. And without mourning and some closure, the mind gets filled with incessant stories of what could have happened. Pauline Boss, the, the author of Ambiguous Loss, said that these families have to learn to hold both their grief and their need to stay open to possibilities that defy grief. It is a difficult task. Inside grief, there are anger, blame, guilt. Grief evokes complex and roller coaster ride of feelings. A woman complained to her friend about her husband who had meted down the night before, saying he couldn't handle the stress of the difficult marriage anymore. So her wise friend advised her to remember all the good thing he did do for her and then talk to her husband. And she did. She apologized to her husband that night and they proclaimed their love and he promised he will never leave her. He died of a heart attack during the night, that night. Imagine how complex her grief reaction might have been. Mixed with her grief were guilt and regret. She thought she was to blame for her husband's death. So much unfinished business. We think that the relationship is over when someone dies. It is clear from my own experiences and those of many others that the relationship continues and evolves after the loss. We continue to get to know and be known by the deceased in ways we could not imagine. If you have regrets with someone who died, it is never, never too late to engage in a healing relationship with him or her. Perhaps the first step would be to make a list of things that you regret. And more specific, the better. And then write a letter to that person expressing your regrets and what you would have wished. And if, you, if the grief comes up in the process, let yourself deeply feel it with kindness. Scour, as John Halifax said. Repeat this until your sorrow feels clear of regrets and guilt, until you feel tenderness to yourself and to the deceased. Remember how my mother looked for my grandmother's body and couldn't find it? And in fact, they buried her obi, the Japanese sash, instead of her body. Though 
She died a year and a half before I was born. I grew up feeling really close to my grandmother, grandmother I never met. And one night, I think when I was like 50 years old, I had a dream in which she told me that I would not have been born if she had not died. And that thread of connection through death and life was real, she told me. I know she lives on in my heart and through my actions. A friend of mine was diagnosed with cervical cancer. She became committed to working with her cancer as an opportunity to heal her mind and body. She's in remission. She told me that her healing work seemed to have also healed her mother, who disclosed shortly before she died that she was a rape survivor with unfinished sorrow. Grief is not just a response to death of a loved one, but we experience losses all the time. In some ways, we are in chronic grief. There is an underlying sorrow in most of us that begs for merciful attention. Again, Stephen Levine wrote, There is the unresolved grief from incomplete or interrupted process of relationships. And there is the inherent, ordinary, daily grief from unsatisfied desire and unceasing flow of impermanence within us and in the world around us. So if we pay attention, who can escape grief? We build defenses around our heart so as not to feel the pain of grief. And the more we push it away, the more we become afraid. And the media takes advantage of such fear, reinforcing our defensiveness and craving for distraction. Unless we wake up to our grief, we cannot wake up to the joy and beauty all around us. So it's good to frequently ask, how am I relating to grief? How am I holding this pain? Am I tense with it? Am I willing and able to relax into it, to breathe with it? Interweave these inquiries with attention to joy, beauty, and non-toothache. <laughs> Grief needs open, non-judgmental space imbued with kindness and patience without an expectation to fix it or get over it. When we attend to it with patience and kindness, it will take care of itself. When the heart opens, it not only opens to the suffering of self and others, it opens to the beauty all around us, and ultimately to grace that is our true nature. Again, Healing is not so much about not having pain, but increasing ability to meet it with kind attention, loving patience. Christine Neff, the author of Self-Compassion, has a suggestion for when we suffer. Whether it's pain or upsetting emotions or grief, she suggests first to make some comforting gesture like this. Like that. Putting your hand on heart and belly. And then 
Then feel the warmth of your hands. Feel the heart. Feel the heart beating. Feel the softness of your belly. And then say three things. You can practice with me if you like. Say to yourself, this is the moment of suffering. Suffering is part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment. This is the moment of suffering. Suffering is part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment. And repeat this over and over. And this is not an attempt to feel better, but it is about recognizing suffering and willingness to meet it with kindness. So to close, and you can Google Christine Neff um, if you want to uh, find out more about this. She has a little YouTube that shows. So to close, I quote the poet, my favorite poet, David White, on solace. Solace is not meant to be an answer, but an invitation through the door of pain and difficulty to the depth of suffering and simultaneous beauty in the world. To look for solace is to learn to ask fierce and more exquisitely pointed questions, questions that reshape our identities and our bodies and our relation to others. Standing in loss, but not overwhelmed by it, we become useful and generous and compassionate, and even amusing companions for others. Um, and I think the children have been waiting, so um, I, I'm really afraid we don't have maybe just two minutes for questions or comments. And you can come talk to me afterwards. I think we have time. <laughs> Maybe they gave up on me. <laughs> yes? Neff, N-E-F-F, and it's, it's a Christian, sorry, it's K-R-I-S-T-I-N, and her book is called Self-Compassion. Oh, yes, thank you. Um, I, uh, the, the guided meditation was inspired by this little book by um, Utejaniya. So I wanted to give him credit. And um, Unattended Sorrow is a book by Stephen Levine. Um, he wrote a whole bunch of really beautiful, useful books about... Uh, learning to, um, I think one is called um, Who Dies, um, Healing into Life and Death, and several books about grief. Wonderful book. So, 
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.